Um, You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. As you're doing that, it's a good day to mention this. Hopefully you're you're getting the idea that for us, ministry to children um, is not an afterthought. It's not primarily a child care function. It's not babysitting so, so the adults can come in and worship in peace, although it's not less than that, certainly. Okay, it's not less than that. But we desire as, as a church to partner with you um, into pouring into the lives of your children and students. That's why we invest a lot of resources, multiple staff positions to do this. And, and one, of the, one of the jobs of our staff is to equip you for works of ministry. So every year we have, I don't know how many, some hundred volunteers and children and student ministries who labor faithfully through the year, pouring their lives into your kids, into my kids. And during the summer, we give them a break. We say, hey, you, you worship with your families. You, you take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit. And it gives us an opportunity, the rest of us as a church, to say, hey, I want to, I want to volunteer. I want to serve in, in some capacity in, with children this summer. You don't have to be here every week necessarily. A lot of, I know we're traveling. A lot of people are here, there, and everywhere. Um, you may say, but Pastor Paul, I don't, I don't know anything about children. And, and to which I would say, you have the one prerequisite, only one. You were a child at one point in your life, and so you are thus qualified to work with these little ones. So please stop by the kiosk on the way out, um, and, and Susan, my wife, or Shannon Piper, or somebody else will, will get back to you and tell you how to do that. All right, so John chapter 12, we continue our study through the book of John, Believe. Many of you know Susan and I hail from, from Tennessee, but we actually lived in the great state of Mississippi for four years, Jackson, Mississippi, where I attended Reformed Theological Seminary. And as I was pursuing uh, my seminary education there, I took a course called homiletics. And homiletics, you may say, what is that? That's basically where divinity students gather together to hear each other's terrible sermons, okay? That, and, that, and that is what we did. Now, I'm preaching from a pulpit right here. But when I was at RTS Jackson, we preached from a pulpit. Do you know what I'm saying? So, so there you get the, 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 the scheme of things. So there's somebody on the ground, but the pulpit is behind. So you can see how high that is. So there, there's a good shot of it. And, and I've advocated for years that we do this at Four Oaks. And, and I've been declined every time. It's really mainly to hide my, bald, my balding. But anyway, nonetheless, but on the front of that pulpit, as students or chapel speakers come to preach like this, there's a little plaque with a Bible verse, and it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It reminded the preacher or whoever was speaking that they had one principal job, and that was not to give their take on life or not merely to share funny stories or try to be humorous or entertaining, but fundamentally the job of the opening of God's Word is that we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would see him for who he truly is. And we can rightly say, if someone that we know, or even ourselves, if we find ourselves unresponsive to Jesus, it's probably because, spiritually speaking, we have failed in some way to apprehend him for who he truly is. That quote sir, we wish to see Jesus, happens to come from our text this morning in John chapter 12. 
where some men come to Jesus, or they actually come to his disciples, and they make this request, and it signals a pivotal turn in the gospel of John. You see, up to this point, it's been all hosannas as Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's come into the city. People are ready to make him king, that he's ready to take over, to make himself conqueror of the Romans and their oppressors. But instead, Jesus takes this opportunity to explain what he has truly come to do so that you and I can see him. So John chapter 12, if you can and if you're willing, you can stand. If you're not able to stand, that's okay. We're going to read from verses 20 through 36, and we'll flash it on the screen for you behind us. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Lord, whether we are all cognizant of it or not, we all have a profound need to see you and to know you. Lord, we acknowledge that as happy as a day this is for for many, it is equally sad for others. Lord, there's, there's, there's people struggling here this morning who are struggling to see you. Maybe it's because they've lost a child in childbirth. Maybe They've lost a child in adulthood. Maybe they haven't been able to conceive children. Maybe their, their dreams in the areas of family have, have not been realized, and they are struggling this morning to see you. So, Lord, do only what you can do during this time. Lord, show Jesus to us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Verse 20 notes that 
some Greeks came to worship at the feast. Now, most likely, these would be what we would call God-fearers or God-worshippers. They were not Jewish by birth, but they were folks who sort of observed Judaism from the outside. And they were attracted to the monotheism of the, of the Jewish religion and the worship of Yahweh. And they, and they saw the ethical, moral lives of the Jewish people around them. And, and, and in contrast to the polytheistic culture of their own age, they were drawn to, to, to worship the living God. But they were not Jews. And so while they could come to feasts and while they could participate in certain aspects of Jewish religion, they were restricted in different ways from doing what Jews do. And, and one of those restrictions was the fact that they were confined at the temple to the court of the Gentiles. And remember, it was at the beginning of Jesus's ministry here in John, where Jesus had cleared the whole court. This is probably as far as Gentiles could go. This is probably as far as these Greeks could go, because Jesus undoubtedly would be teaching sort of in the inner sanctums of the temple. And so they did the next best thing. They, they went and grabbed Philip. Now, why did they grab Philip? Philip is a disciple. He is a Jew, but he has a Greek name. And so maybe they felt more comfortable with someone that they felt shared some sort of Greek heritage. Remember that Philip was from Galilee and his brother as well. Undoubtedly, this was a much more cosmopolitan sort of area of Israel, not as sectarian as Jerusalem. And so maybe they just felt more comfortable approaching Philip. Philip grabs Andrew. And I was just listening to, to R.C. Sproul um, preach on this passage this week. And don't do that and then compare it to this one. That would be a, a grave mistake on your part. But, but R.C. notes that the church that he preached at before he passed away, St. Andrew's Chapel, they named it after Andrew, because they said every time Andrew shows up in the gospel, he's bringing people to Jesus, bringing people to Jesus. And I just thought that, 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 that is the coolest thing. So Peter, Philip grabs Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn go to Jesus. And, now, and this, this idea of see Jesus, we're, we're talking about something here beyond like getting an autograph. Or I, I want to go, go see FSU play. I want to go see a famous athlete. Or I want to go see somebody in concert. The, the word literally means to be granted an interview. To be given a sit down. They wanted to, to have a, a dialogue, a, a give and take with Jesus to find out more. They undoubtedly have been observing this powerful and popular ministry of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus. And so they, they wanted to be granted an interview. Interestingly, on CBS recently, they highlighted the 65th anniversary of the coronation of Elizabeth II to be the Queen of England. And by the way, if you're not watching The Crown on Netflix, repent after this and go watch it immediately. But what's interesting about this interview, it was her first time ever to speak of it, ever. The queen rarely grants an interview to begin with, but this is the first time she, from her perspective, 65 years ago, details her own coronation. And part of the queen's inaccessibility, undoubtedly, is that you just don't go up to the queen and ask for an interview, right? You don't do that. You send your emissary. You send, you send your third party. That's undoubtedly what these Greeks are doing. They're sending their emissary through Philip. 
Now, what's interesting about this passage, I think, and if you've been with us studying through the book of John, you know that John, he, he particularly loves irony. He loves play on words. He, he loves to, to, to be talking about something in a physical sense and then something in a spiritual sense. And there's two particular ironies that I think perform or contain the backdrop to this passage that will help us understand where he's going with this. And the first is this. Look back at verse 19 of John 12. And Josh preached on this last week. But again, remember, the way we divide up these scriptures are pretty arbitrary. We, we, we divide them up and give them chapter and verse number to help them make, make them more accessible. And so we're not preaching on 10 chapters at once and all those, all those sorts of things. But listen to the way verse 19 reads. And then it's, this forms a narrative that goes right into 20. And see if you can catch the irony here. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. See, they, they, they were talking about the world going after him in a, in a metaphorical kind of sense. Kind of like parents when your kids are like, everyone's got one. Everyone's buying one. Everyone's overpaying for this thing that I've just got to have everyone, right? So this is kind of, everyone's going after Jesus. And John says, you have no idea. See, there was some Greeks he says, literally, the world is going up after him. Think about this, Four Oaks. Sixty years later, when John is writing this, the world had literally gone after Jesus. It was in part Greek Christians who were reading this. Four Oaks, here we are as a legacy to this 2,000 years later, that we are part of the world that has gone after him. We have, by God's grace, seen Jesus, which brings us to sort of our second, second irony that we find here. If you've, again, been with us in the study, you know that John talks about sight a whole lot, seeing. He talks about physical sight, how the man was born blind, and he contrasts it with spiritual blindness, the fact that even though this man was, was being healed of his, of his blindness, the Pharisees were becoming even more and more blind. He talks about to Nicodemus, no one can enter, no one, um, unless you are born again, you cannot what? See the kingdom of God. See, the word see most often in John refers to something much more than just physical sight or engaging in a personal interview. See, for John, seeing is a metaphor for your and my capacity to apprehend and embrace Jesus for who he truly is. And in turn, to respond to him in faith. I think what John wants to communicate here is, do you want to be a part of this great contingent that knows and sees and worships Jesus, then let me, let, me, let me tell you how this works. Let me tell you how this happens. And so we're going to dive into verse 23, why Jesus came. And then we'll spend a little bit of time applying what we see here towards the end of the sermon. John's gospel, you could say, in a lot of ways, is one giant game of manhunt. You notice that? 
Everywhere Jesus goes, they're trying to either arrest him, to kill him, to hide him, to dispose of him, to, to make sure he is not around anymore to disrupt the peace. And one of the phrases, though, that Jesus often uses when he is in these situations, it'll, either John will say it or Jesus will say it, he will say, my hour has what? Not yet come. My hour's not yet come. It's a reminder to us that however random things look in the life of Jesus and his ministry and people after him, and by the way, however random they appear to be in your life and in my life, God is the sovereign. He is in absolute control. Jesus makes it clear. I, I lay down my life. I take up my life. No one takes it from me. I'm in control of this thing from start to finish. But time after time, he says, his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. But yet, look in verse 23. What does he say? And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says it in a different way in verse 27. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. See, Jesus here is talking about his death. See, there's nothing random about the death of Jesus. While from a human perspective, it is traitorous, it is murderous, but in God's economy, it is not a surprise. Because in order for you and I to have sight, Jesus had to come with this one singular mission, and that was to die. Now, there's two ways, two metaphors that John uses in this text to give us a picture of what this was like and why we need to understand this if we are to truly see Jesus for who he truly is. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When we first moved to Tallahassee, we, we came to know how much Tallahassee loves and reveres its trees, okay? Right up there next to God somewhere. But anyway, we, we moved into a house that had a bunch, and still does, a bunch of oak trees, which presented its own set of problems, primarily the scourge of the earth that we know as the rodent squirrel. Now, I have, I have a bumper sticker or a shit on my car that says, I don't break for rodents, I speed up, okay? I do. These guys, um, they, they chew holes in everything. They clamber around on our roof. They get in our soffit. They get in our, our attic. They cause all sorts of problems. We had to have a tree removed in our front yard. We thought this might help the matter of the squirrels. All it did was make a family of raccoons homeless who in turn chewed a hole in our roof and made a home there. I hate all, I mean, God's creatures are great and everything, but we're, you get it. One of the lesser known hassles of the oak tree, though, is the thousands of acorns they shed. Have you notice this? And they'll, they'll come to rest in, right in our front yard, and there they'll come just a little bit under, they'll embed themselves under the surface, and they'll start to shoot up their little, their little thing, little, 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 little oak tree in the making. And because I'm OCD and everything, when the kids were little, I would go pay them to pull up all of these acorns from our front yard. A penny an acorn, kids. It was well worth. It was well worth it. And when they would come, this was pretty amazing, though, that they 
the acorn was right in the middle of dying but growing. Do you know what I mean? So here's this acorn, and you can tell the, the, the roots are, are pushing out from it, and the shoot is popping up. And the outside of the acorn is literally in the process of dying. Because that's what has to happen for something like this to grow. And Jesus is using this very example. He's saying, this is how salvation works. Understand something, both for me, meaning Jesus, and for you, and for me. See, Jesus says, this is, this is what happens. They're going to come and destroy my body. They're going to put it in the earth. They're, they're, they're going to leave me there for, for three days. But I'm going to rise again. And in fact, my rising is the very means by which you will have eternal life, which is so paradoxical, is it not? Especially for a people who were waiting for their Messiah, long-awaited Messiah, to ride in on that donkey, on that horse, to conquer the Romans, the oppressors, so that they could have life. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way in God's economy. Jesus, see, verse 24, he's talking about himself. See, he is the grain of wheat. He is the one that falls into the earth and dies. But when he is raised, the way John says it, he is raised to glorify the Father so that he can bring many sons to glory. Now, the second word picture Jesus uses, look at verse 32. Verse 32. He's again speaking of his death, and he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Then the commentary is, he used this, he spoke in this way to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now, in, in the Jewish religious world, death was always spoken about as something that would take you down. You were going down to Sheol. Or if you were going to kill someone through capital judicial punishment, you would throw someone down literally to stone them. That's how killings were done. You would throw them off a cliff or throw them off the temple or a high thing, and they would, they would take rocks. And again, this is what happened to Stephen, by the way, when he was preaching at the temple in Acts. And this metaphor of throwing people down was the way Jews referred to death, but not the way the Romans referred to death. See, the way the Romans referred to death was that someone would be raised up. Now, what does that mean? Well, of all the known ways that man has invented to, to, to be terrible and torture one another and to kill one another, crucifixion has to be near the top of the list. It's Mother's Day, so we'll spare you right now. But it's, it's a horrific death. And the way that this was referred to in the vernacular is that people would be raised up. In other words, they would be nailed to a cross on the ground and then raised up in shame for the whole world to see. Jesus says, this is why I've come, to be a seed put into the ground, to be a common shamed criminal put on a cross and lifted up. Now, do you understand why the crowd responded in the way they did. They understood exactly what he's saying. Look, look in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we had heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Jesus, we think you're the Messiah. 
We just saw you raise Lazarus. You've ridden in triumph into the city. What do you mean you're going to have to die? Victory doesn't come through dying. The Son of Man reference that they have here, it come, remember when we preached through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is a messianic figure that rides on the clouds. And he comes as Messiah to deliver his people from earthly oppression. That's who the Son of Man is. That's who we want you to be, Jesus. But how can you save us? How can you save us if you're going to die? How does crucifixion result in eternal life? See, their view of Messiah was shaped by what they perceived to be their greatest need. And in their minds, their greatest need was political liberation. And we need a liberator. Let me ask you a question. What do you perceive to be your greatest need this morning? Because whatever you perceive to be your greatest need, you're looking for some sort of Messiah to save you from that, to rescue you from that. And and that conception of what you think you need to be full, to be complete, will absolutely positively shape the way you view Jesus. Because I know there's no shortage of political controversy today. And I know that some of you wish we would say more and some of you wish we would say less, um, which means we're just right, right? No, okay. Guys, let me just say these things are important. We have a collision of worldviews in our culture. There's no question about it. But here here is my concern. You see, oftentimes we talk about these things not as if they are important, which they are. Don't email me. But oftentimes we talk about them as if they are the most important thing. See, and it reveals something about what we perceive to be our greatest need, what we perceive to be the world's greatest need. See, if you, if you think that what our fundamental issue is, like what, our, what we really need, we need a code of ethics, we, we need a new morality. We, we, we need someone to save our culture, to save our society. If you believe that is our greatest need, then Jesus for you will be a cultural crusader. He'll be a great teacher. He will be the dispenser of knowledge and, and truths that will help us live more at peace with one another. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. What you really believe is that we need a path forward for human flourishing. We, we need an example we need someone to show us the way. And in, in that light, Jesus then becomes the human being par excellence, so to speak. Or, and to pick up one from today, maybe you believe that our greatest need is to overthrow the societal pressures and oppressions that we're a part of. Maybe you believe and perceive that our greatest need is for justice. And that what we really need is someone to speak truth to power, then Jesus for you will be social justice warrior. And let me just say something. All of those things have elements of truth. All of those things are, have implications for the fact that Jesus died. In fact, we are involved in many of these things, but none of them tell us 
the most foundational reason why Jesus had to die. See, it's no coincidence that in the Gospel of John, the most common metaphor picture of Jesus is that he is Savior. And the reason that he is depicted as Savior is because we need saving. You see, sin, and I don't mean like sin out there, although that's important. We need to be engaged in our fight against it. Sin, and I don't mean sin out there. I'm talking about sin in here. Personal responsibility. Rebellion against God. Turning our backs and going our own way. Wanting to be God. Folks, this is our most fundamental problem. And it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Ethically, morally, racially, in oppression. Yet, the biggest problem in our life is you and me. You know, some of the toughest pastoral situations that we have to deal with um, involve broken marriages. And in any sort of counseling relationship, there's always culpability on both sides. There's always two sides to every story. There's always plenty of blame to go around. Yet, yet, those situations that I have seen that have been the most dire, they, they've been literal. These, these are marriages not just dead, but dead and buried six feet under. The only thing keeping these couples together is just a, a, a minimalist string of Christian commitment before each other. But I've seen marriages, by God's grace, turn around by just one, this is not, this is not the, the solution to all marital problems, but have always begun with one of the partners, and usually the man, let me just say this, usually the man, who has turned and looked at his wife and said, the biggest problem in our marriage is me. And I am going to take responsibility for the deficits that we have here. I may not be culpable for everything. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that I, I'm following the path of salvation here that Jesus lays out. I want life in my marriage. I want life in my relationships. Well, guess what, men? You have to die. You have to die. I've been through some heart, heartbreaking pastoral situations where, where men have been confronted in their sin and their response has been, yes, but, but if only she, and this wouldn't have happened. If only she had done this, and it wouldn't have been so hard. If only she had done this. Men, it's never, never, never too late to repent. And folks, he who has ears, let him hear. As long and as, as much as we always situate our problems as somewhere out there, we misunderstand, we misestimate, we underestimate the, the, the effects of sin and the need for the grace of God. And Jesus says that comes not by living, but by dying. You know, there's only three times in the Gospel of John, I mean, I'm sorry, three times in the Gospels where God's audible voice is heard. One time is at the transfiguration. The second time is at Jesus' baptism. And the third time is here. 
Jesus says, I must die. Unless we think that Jesus' death is a cosmic mistake, a tragic accident, God speaks and he says, yes, you will glorify my name. It will be glorified. But the way that happens is through death. That's why Jesus looked down in verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled? Of course it is. He's getting ready to die to take on the sins of the world. But he says, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no. Jesus said, don't save me from this hour. It's only by me fulfilling my hour that my people will truly see me. So how does that become real for us? How does that become real for us? We spend these last couple of minutes just in a couple of points of application, focusing on verses 25 and 26. Let me read those again for us. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Because whether you have known Jesus your whole life, or whether this is brand new information and you don't know him at all, all of our need is fundamentally the same. And that's to see Jesus for who he truly is. And he says, this must begin, look back at the text, by hating your life. It's such a strange thing to say. Well, Paul, Pastor Paul, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't enjoy relationships and life and I shouldn't take my mom out to lunch because that would be loving my life too much. Guys, don't try that at home. Don't do that, okay? Does it, does it mean that? But Jesus is using a metaphor here to say that when we hate our life, we are acknowledging this issue of ownership, that God is our sovereign, that he is in control, that he has the rights and the ownership and the privilege of being our sovereign and our ruler. See, the highest value culturally is that we are free, independent, autonomous selves. Self-choice, self-determination, and anything that restricts those choices is to be obliterated and annihilated at all costs. Paul Trepp says the four most um, relevant words when it comes to this issue of ownership are the first four words of the Bible. What are they? In the beginning, God. This is fundamentally what it means to not love one's life. It is to acknowledge God I am completely and fully dependent upon you for everything. You call the shots here. You're the Lord of my life. I I don't determine right and wrong by sticking my finger in the wind or or, or deciding which way the cultural winds are, are blowing. God, I am here to follow you. And that's why Jesus says, serve me, follow me, believe in me. Die to your own claims of self-determination. What a paradox. In our quest to get everything we can out of life, we hold on to life. We love our life. But what is the inevitable result? We lose it. See, the gospel 
turns the world upside down. Because you want to have life, you want to have true freedom, you want to have true peace, you want to have eternal life, then you got to lose your life. You've got to be like that seed planted in the ground. You have to be like that person lifted up on the cross. If you really value your life, Jesus says, you will lose it. And when you lose it, you will truly see me for who I really am. Can you see Jesus today? I pray that you will. Lord, we... We get ready to come to the table. We're acknowledging that our greatest need is for spiritual sight. And so, Father, we need you to open our eyes to our true need and in turn open our eyes to who you truly are. Father, let give us wisdom to know how to apply these truths in our lives where we know that relationships, marriages, everything, they're very complex. They're, 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 not, they're not fixed through simple sermons. But Lord, we do believe you've given us your word to set a pattern and trajectory in our hearts and lives. And Lord, would your work do its grace in us today? In Jesus' name, amen.